Romans 14, and we talked about um, the message of Romans last week. You remember, uh, we finished the final uh, few chapters in Romans, but I wanted to just go over one more thing, one little part that I uh, had to skip last week and talk about it, and it's uh, how to make good decisions in conscience issues of life. So gray areas of life, areas in which uh, good and godly people can disagree, how to make good decisions on what to do in those areas. That's what we're going to talk about. And I want to really jump off of Romans 14, verse 5. One person judges one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Let's talk about what that means today. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Um, Dear Father in heaven, we're thankful for this morning that you have given us. Thank you for the season that we get to um, think on the preciousness of the incarnation and all of the gifts that you truly have given us in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone. We pray that we would be um, those who are faithful, uh, faithful bearers of the gospel, that we would walk worthy of the manner of the calling to which we've been called, that we would walk worthy of the gospel as your as your word continually exhorts us to. We pray that this message would be helpful um, to these students in making good choices and, and not just living a life um, that anyone else could live, but living a life to the max for your glory and for your worship. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's very easy, isn't it, to um, be with people that agree with you. Um, right? It's, it's very easy. Sometimes that kind of determines your friendship choices. Well, this person agrees with me on everything, so it's very easy to hang out with them. But in the church of God, we are surrounded by people that may not totally agree with us in everything. But yet we're called to, to be unified together for a bigger purpose um, than just us, and that is to, to worship God together, to seek his seek his fame around the world, to, to, to join in unity, to further the, 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 the mission of Jesus and the, the, the gospel message and to send that out, right? It's, it's very easy to be with people that you agree with, but being in the body of Christ uh, will result in you being with other people that you maybe don't agree with on every single area of your life. Um, how do we live with one another in areas that we disagree with one another? That's what Paul wants to talk about in Romans 14 and 15 and even beginning in Romans 13, I would say. Uh, how do we live with people that we disagree with? And once again, remember, this is kind of like the big purpose of the letter of Romans, right? He's writing to them to unify them under the truth of the gospel so that they may join together in sending him out in gospel ministry, right? He wants to share with them the truth of the gospel. This is what we believe. Uh, this is what changes our life. This is what causes us to no longer live just for ourselves and our own interests and our freedoms, but to live for the worship of Christ. Remember the big transition in Romans is Romans 12, verse 1. I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is how we live as believers. Believers are those who live out the gospel. They're continually seeking to worship Christ in everything they do. The gospel changes the way you even disagree with people. It's because of what Christ has done for you. Um, you are now new 
in the ways in which you live. Let's just uh, remind ourselves of a few things. Remember, a gray area or a conscious, uh, conscience issue is an issue of behavior, not necessarily doctrine, but behavior that is not addressed in Scripture and requires you as a believer to have wisdom and will test your love. So that's kind of how I defined a gray area, something that's not directly addressed in Scripture. It's also a behavioral uh, not necessarily doctrinal. Now, a few things. As I was reading this last week, uh, Romans 14 is all about living with uh, fellow believers who have different convictions about what foods they can eat. And that might not be necessarily an issue that you struggle with, right? I really love pork, but I, I know somebody at church who really does not like pork and thinks it's sinful to eat pork. I don't think that's an issue that you guys are struggling with, but there are applications to this. Some people have a, a sensitive conscience about one issue that is not maybe directly addressed in Scripture, and you do not. And so how do you live with these people? The, the Bible actually, uh, when, when you read Paul, in, in regards to this whole food and days and drinks um, um, issue, sometimes Paul actually... Um, doesn't just say, hey, who has the weak conscience in the room? I'm going to kind of shift my position to, to, the, to theirs. He, he does that in, in chapter 14 here a little bit. He says, hey, seek, seek a brother's welfare, right? Don't try to intentionally destroy a fellow in Christ just by your freedoms. That's what he's saying in Romans 14. But there are other places, like in Colossians 2 or Galatians, or you could say 1 Timothy 4, where, where Paul says, these people are treating food or marriage or special days as like a gospel issue, right? If you celebrate this day, if you don't eat these foods, if, if you don't get married, you're a true Christian. They're, they're treating it as a gospel issue. And you see in those places, Paul comes down really, really, really hard. Matter of fact, I'll just read it to you. Colossians chapter 2, right? Therefore, uh, no one is to judge you in food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Uh, things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but not the substance. Or down in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, um, If you have died with Christ to the elemental, uh, elementary principles of the world, why... As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which deal with everything uh, destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters having, to be sure, a word of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. See, some people are saying, hey, if I, if I don't have this kind of food, if I you know, celebrate this specific kind of day, it, 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 it puts me on a higher spiritual plane than you. That's not what Paul is talking about here in Romans 14. He's talking about believers who could be fairly mature believers, but through their past, they just have trouble with uh, certain foods, because in the Jewish religion, um, um, Jews valued a certain diet over others. So this is not necessarily some Christian saying, hey, I'm better than you. It's just a believer with a weaker conscience saying, hey, to me, this is sin. And, and Paul actually will kind of not be gripped by freedoms if he sees it as an issue of causing his brother to stumble. Paul actually says, out of love for them, 
because I don't want them to stumble. I don't want them to follow me in something that they are convicted or guilty about. I'm going to not pursue all of the freedoms that I could pursue. I want to talk about the conscience here, and I want to ask just three questions about the Christian's freedom and their conscience. Uh, Three questions. What is the conscience? Uh, What are you commanded to pursue with your conscience? And then finally, how do you develop a fully convinced conscience? It'll make sense, and I'll I'll go through those again. But I just want to answer these three questions kind of about the conscience, jumping off of Romans 14.5 here. Uh, First question to answer this morning, what is the conscience? What is the conscience What is the conscience, and why should you want one? (laughs) You have one, so you don't have a choice. But at least maybe you can appreciate your conscience. Let's uh, let's start with the definition of what a conscience is. A conscience is your self-perception of your standing before God. It is a, a witness, a testimony within you, of where you are at with God. It is a witness either accusing or encouraging you about your standing before God. Uh, we, we see the conscience all over Paul. Paul frequently refers to himself as having a clear conscience, as having a blameless conscience, as, as knowing nothing against himself. Paul has a clear conscience. But we, we also see in the writings of Paul that, it is, that, that a conscience is with all people. Matter of fact, we talked about this way back when in Romans, Romans chapter 2. And in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, you remember, we're basically saying all men in some capacity have a knowledge of God. And all men then have a conscience that is either excusing or accusing them in all things because they have knowledge of God and that perception of knowledge of God um, their conscience uses to evaluate their own conscience. Even, Even unbelievers who don't have the law, Paul would say, in Romans uh, 2, verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do the things that the, uh, of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, and their thoughts alter, uh, alternating, uh, alternately accusing or else defending them. Sorry, LSB once again is different than what I have memorized in my in the past. You, you see there, all people have this knowledge of God, and within this knowledge of God, they have this conscience within that's either, what is it doing? It's accusing or it's defending them through it, right? The conscience is a built-in witness, a built-in witness of the knowledge of God that's inside of you. Uh, you know you have a conscience in two ways, Paul basically says there in 2.15, right? You have, a, you have a conscience because it is accusing you. I have done something wrong and I feel uh, guilty about it. You know you have a, a conscience because your conscience is maybe defending you, or as it says in ESV, excusing you, right? When, when you try to make excuses for your sin, that's evidence, that's witness that you have a conscience, a conscience about you, a self-perception of your standing before God, and that's causing you to make excuses for what you've done because your conscience feels guilty. But a, a clear conscience is a valuable thing to have. A clear conscience is a freedom from guilt under the truth of God. A clear conscience is a freedom of guilt under the truth of God, right? 
There's all sorts of ways to have a quote-unquote clear conscience, but the true biblical clear conscience it comes to you because you know God's Word and what He says about what sin is and what sin isn't. Some people pursue a freedom of guilt um, from many, many excuses, right? Well, I'm just naturally this way. Oh, I was born into this kind of family. I was raised in this type of situation. Therefore, they excuse their guilt. That's how they kind of pursue a freedom from guilt. Some people pursue a freedom from guilt based on forgetfulness. I'll just try to forget about God. I'll just drown out myself in sin so that I completely forget about God. That is called, by the way, a seared conscience, that you that you you persist in disobeying the knowledge of God that you have to the extent where you no longer have spiritual feeling anymore. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 4, a seared conscience. But that's not a clear conscience, right? Making excuses doesn't give you a clear conscience. Um, drowning out your conscience with sin doesn't give you a clear conscience. Where does a clear conscience come from? Uh, one writer says this, your conscience is only as reliable is only as reliable as it adheres to the truth. The more your conscience adheres to the truth, the more your conscience and your mind is transformed by the word of God, the freer you can live and the more happy you can live as well, right? Because when you know the word of God, you you know a few things. You know what sin is and you know what sin isn't. And also, you know what to do with your sin. And your heart can have a clear conscience because you can embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, Jesus has paid it all. There is no guilt for me to bear before God if all of the judgment for my sin is on Christ. That comes to you through the knowledge of God's word. You can have a clear conscience. Now, that is a conscience that's a clear conscience. Why do you want it? Obviously, that that first reason there is, right, you can have a clear conscience, and that gives you tremendous freedom in God. There's other reasons. Just basically, you'd understand this. A, A conscience is a great gift from God, isn't it? A conscience is a warning, a warning alarm in your heart and in your mind. Hey, don't touch this. This is dangerous. And a conscience that's informed by God's truth gives you a warning, a warning sign in your life of things that displease God and are dangerous to you and to your heart and to your mind and to your life. A conscience is a really, really valuable thing. It's a gift from God. It's a cry of alarm. There is this illustration in nature. And now, how many are here? Like 30 people. 29 of you are going to be unexcited about this illustration. And one of you is going to be super excited about this illustration. Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this, Brooklyn? Are you ready for this? Uh, you're not going to be excited about this illustration, but you're going to know somebody intimately who is very excited about this illustration. There is this bird called a drogo bird. Do you know what a drogo bird is? It's a drongo. A drongo? It says drogo in the book. Drongo. All right, there is, apparently there's a bird called a drongo bird that's spelled D-R-O-G-O. Uh, it said Drongo. Okay, well, anyway. We'll go with Drongo. And if this illustration does not work out, it's because I got the wrong bird. Um, it sounds an alarm whenever there is a predator present. Say there's a hawk flying around. This Drongo bird will cry out. Now, this bird's cry is very valuable to other creatures. For example, there is this thing, I think, that's called a mercat. 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 Uh, and it hears the drongo bird's cry, and it runs away because it knows that a hawk is near. So you could say 
the meerkat uses the cry of alarm from the drongo. Good night. Words are weird. Uh, and it saves itself from danger. There's also another, uh, another way you could understand this, right? A conscience is a cry of alarm, like a ship that is way ahead of you on the high seas and saying, hey, look out, there are icebergs ahead. You might want to avoid this, right? A conscience is a gift because it alerts you to danger and it enables you to run and hide and be saved. When you have a clear conscience, when you have a conscience informed by God's word, by God's truth, you have a defense, a defense, and that's a gift, right? That is something that you should pursue. That's something that you should seek. That's not something that you should say, hey, the Christian shouldn't have a conscience. You should say, wow, I should have a clear conscience. I should have a conscience informed by the word of God. That is a conscience. That's why you want it. Second question, even though that first question was two questions packed in one, but we're going to go with the second question. What is the Christian's calling in every issue of their conscience? What is the Christian's calling with conscience issues, with, with issues where, where two uh, God-fearing, Christ-loving believers may disagree. What is your calling? Your calling isn't just, as we see in the New Testament, to have the most uh, prohibitive conscience of all your friends. Your, your calling isn't just to say, hey, who's offended by what I'm going to be, I'm going to be the most offended by everything. I'm going to not do anything because I'm going to be so worried about what other people think of me. That's actually not your calling. You, you see what your calling is there in Romans 14, five, your calling is to be fully convinced in your own mind. That is what every Christian is to be. They are to be fully convinced in your mind about every situation in, in what you face, right? Uh, the word there, fully convinced, is, is two words kind of packed together. It means to be uh, fully and bearing. Every Christian is called in every situation to bear full conviction about what they are doing and why they are doing it. Uh, that is what you are called to do in every situation. You are called to attack every situation with study, with questions, with evaluation. What am I fully convinced that I should do in this situation? So you could say it this way. There may be gray areas. There may be areas that you and another believer may disagree on, but there should be no gray area for you. You should be fully convinced about everything you're doing. You should, you should see the world in terms of you in black and white terms. Now, you understand this person may disagree with me, but I am fully convinced about what I do. I live convictionally. I do this because I am absolutely convinced that this is what I am called to do in every single situation of my life. That seems a little intense, right? But that's what Paul is saying, right? He says, everyone must be fully convinced in their own mind when it comes to issues on which you disagree. What are you to be convin uh, uh, fully convinced for? What's, what are you convinced about? You are convinced that this activity done in this way worships Christ the most with your body. You are convinced, I am doing this, and I am fully convinced that by doing this, I am praising God the most through how I do this. Notice what Paul says there. Uh, in 14.6, let's keep reading. Uh, 
he who regards the day regards it for the Lord. And he who eats, eats for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Notice, one believer is doing something because they are fully convinced that they are doing this for the Lord. One believer is not doing something because they are fully convinced that they are not doing it for the Lord. Both are expressing worship to Christ from their heart about what pleases Him. They are both fully convinced about what pleases God and what praises Him. They are fully convinced that they belong to Christ. He says that in the end of verse 8 there, right? We are the Lord's. I'm not myself. I'm not my own. I belong to Christ, and I'm called to honor Christ in my body, in my mind, in my thinking, in everything. And, and what's the reason for all this? I belong to the Lord, and I was saved to be a, a living uh, expression of worship to the Lord because He has fully purchased all of me. Verse 9, what does he say? For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. All of my life, from, from life to death, is the Lord's. Christ has purchased it, and now I live intentionally, convictionally, for his glory. Every aspect of your life is dominated by not just what can I do, but what brings him glory. That's what you need to be fully convinced about. What brings the Lord glory? most glory in every action of my life. Every situation is put into focus this way, right? This is what we talked about last week, right? When, when we were talking about Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? The gospel applied brings everything into focus in your life. How can I be a living sacrifice in this situation? How can I be... Uh, be serving Christ in this situation? How can I make this circumstance an act of worship in how I engage in it? Now, now, now some of you are like listening to this and like, I know exactly what he's talking about. I know exactly what I should do in this situation or shouldn't do in this situation for worship to Christ. And that's really great. That's wonderful. I would say that is a sign that the gospel is taking root in your life, that you want to live all of your life as an act of worship to the Lord, right? That is the natural uh, consequence of the gospel in your life. I want to live as a living sacrifice to Christ and Christ alone. But it may be a little bit different in how you interpret that versus how someone next to you interprets that. Um, some of you may be led to enjoy many things as a gift of God that can be received with thanksgiving. Some of you may be led to avoid many things that you see as not a gift of God, right? Uh, there is this, once again, going back to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, there, are, there is false teaching that forbids marriage and forbids certain foods, but then Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy 4.3, um, God created these things to be shared 
in with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Right? There are some things that are actually, you get to enjoy more through thanksgiving. You get to enjoy more because you are living it intentionally. And let me just say this. What what is the value of living life fully convinced? Well, everything in your life now has a purpose, doesn't it? Everything in my life has a purpose that I am pursuing, right? I'm no longer just living for myself, but I'm living to praise and thank God, right? And suddenly everything in your life has new energy about it too, right? Your chores have new energy about them because they are done to the glory of God, right? Your schoolwork has a new energy about it. Matter of fact, I would say your grades will go up because you're doing it as an act of worship to God and not just trying to get through. This will give you purpose. Every area of your life will also have sufficiency, right? You know that, hey, if if I am fully convinced that this is what Christ Jesus wants me to do, I'm also fully convinced that he's going to give me every resource to do this faithfully. I love Second uh, Peter 1, 3, right? His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Matter of fact, look over in, in Romans 14, 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand, right? You have conviction that I have everything that I need to live for the glory of God when you are fully convinced. Now, if you're living your life just saying, hey, uh, uh, I'm going to live in, in gray land and just kind of say, I hope this doesn't offend God. And I'll just kind of like kind of coast through that way. You're not as fully convinced about his sufficiency. But when you say, hey, in this activity, I have sufficiency because I know Christ is going to give me what I need to worship him in this area You have great hope, great sufficiency. You believe that the Lord is able to make you stand. The Lord is your master. He will give you the grace to live out this life as an act of worship to him. You'll have great sufficiency. I would also say if if you live this way, if you live fully convinced in your own mind, every area of your fellow believer's life will also suddenly have understanding to you. you. You'll be able to give people grace when they disagree with you. You'll be able to say, you know what, I love Jesus, and I'm truly convinced that you love Jesus as well. And even though we do not disagree, or even though we disagree on this area, I believe that you are fully convinced that you are living for the worship of Christ, and I can respect that. I may not agree with exactly how you live your life, but I can find common ground on why we are living this life, right? We are living to the worship and praise of Christ. We are living to be living sacrifices dedicated to proclaiming the mercies of Christ. And then in areas unclear, you can choose to see your fellow believers with thanksgiving, right? Instead of with criticism, you can, as it says in Romans 14, one, right, accept one another because you are thankful that they are living lives that are fully convinced about how to bring worship to Christ. You can accept one another. This is not necessarily agreeing with everything they're doing, but it's appreciating them as 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 full Christians saved by grace and dedicated to the worship of God. You'll also you'll also, if you do this, be very willing to set aside freedoms, right? Because your life is not about you and your freedoms. Your life is about Christ's worship. And sometimes Christ may be worshipped when you do things with thanksgiving. 
And sometimes Christ may be worshipped when you don't do things in preference of another believer, right? It clears up your life. It, it enables you to have an understanding for your fellow believers. Let's, let's move on to our final question. So we talked about what is the conscience. We talked about what you're called to do in every area where perhaps you disagree with another believer. Final question concerning the Christian's freedoms and conscience issues. How do I become fully convinced in my own mind about a certain area of life? How do I get this Romans 14, 5 full conviction that everything I am doing is for the worship and praise of God? Now, if you get this point, if you get this point, this will unlock what you are to do in every situation. This will make life very clear to you about how you are to live. Um, These are points that I've gone over before. But every time I go over them, I kind of rearrange them based on uh, what the message is I'm bringing to you. So here, here are these points that may be familiar to some of you, uh, may not be to all of you. I would basically say the basic answer is every area of your life in which you have questions, you should pepper with these questions. You should pepper with questions about every area of your life. Now, remember, these are not questions that you use to judge someone else's behavior. These are questions you use to evaluate your own choices in life so that you can be fully convinced about what God wants you to do in your life. Uh, First question you should ask. Now, this is confusing my structure, right? Uh, My structure is questions, and then under one of my points is questions you should ask about that question. Sorry about that, Uh, but let's just work with with me and my weakness here. Uh, Questions you should ask about this area. First question, is this unclear or uncommanded in Scripture? Am I really convinced that this is an unclear issue in my life? Or does Scripture actually speak to this? I should form convictions of conscience based on what Scripture says. And and I only have freedom where Scripture is not clearly directing me, right? Don't fall into the trap of of thinking that every area in your life is is freedom. Uh, We don't get that sense at all in the New Testament, right? There are bundles of issues, bundles of bundles of issues that are completely set for you through the commands that you see in the New Testament, right? There's a lot of black and white in the New Testament, I would say. For example, the authority of Scripture is not a gray area. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells you that all Scripture has been breathed out by God and is authoritative, clear. It's not a gray area. It's not like, hey, I can disagree about that. Some some areas of Scripture are not inspired. That's that's not a gray area at all. Uh, It's, it, there's... There is a necessity of sanctification also, right? Some Christians would say, hey, you don't need to be sanctified to follow Christ. There is a necessity of sanctification. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 4. Serving and being members of a local church. We see that in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and Romans 12, 6, right? It is assumed that you serve and are joined to a local church. That's not a gray area. Sexual sin in your life, whether that's sexual immorality, whether that's adultery, or whether that's homosexuality, are not gray areas. What you do with your thoughts and in your minds are not gray areas in the Christian's life. Uh, Sins of the lips, whether that's lying, or whether that's coarse jesting or joking, or whether that's corrupting speech, are not gray areas in the believer's life. I've spoken to many a teen that thought that words didn't matter. They're just... They're just little 
They're just little bundles of letters that we attach our own meaning to, so they do not matter at all. But we see in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, Revelation 22, Revelation, uh, James 3, uh, 2 Thessalonians, uh, no, that's, that's another verse, uh, Ephesians 4, again, we see all of these areas in which the words we speak are very important to Jesus. And the words that we use can either destroy or build up our fellow believers, whether that's lying, joking, or just nastiness with our speech. Uh, work ethic is not a gray area in the believer's life. We are called to be hard workers. You see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, robbery and thieving is also not a gray area. If some of you are contemplating a life of home uh, felony invasion, uh, think again. Think again. Uh, that's according to Ephesians 4.28. Um, keeping temptations nearby, keeping, you know, provisions for the flesh nearby is not a gray area in your life. You see this in Romans 13, 14. Holiness, the Christians call to holiness in their life, to separation and dedication to God is not a gray area. You see that in 1 Peter 1, 14. And that's just to name a few. These areas are not gray. And maybe before you decide, hey, what movie should I watch? What music should I watch? Maybe you should actually search and see is there a way in which Scripture maybe addresses some of the areas that I'm thinking about? Is this unclear or uncommanded in Scripture? Here's another question you could pepper this issue with. Will this lead to greater bondage in my life? 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful to me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Uh, Paul is fully convinced, right, that he, that he belongs to the Lord fully. He's been fully purchased by the Lord. And, and for that reason, he is very careful about what he allows into his life. Because he doesn't want to be dominated by anything other than the Lord's service and the Lord's purposes in his life. And there may be many good and innocent things in this world, but if one of these things comes between you and prizing Christ most, there is an issue, right? You, you could ask this. If this is something that I must have in my life, if this is something that I'm attaching words like, this will make me happy, this will make me satisfied, I can't go without this. If, if this is something like that, it's probably something that you shouldn't have or you should have in a very limited and con controlled manner. Why? Because that can lead you to bondage. And, and and the Christian is to be bound to one, and one alone, and that is Christ Jesus. Will this lead me to bondage? Or you could think about it positively with another question. Will this build me up? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And then he also says in, in 1 Corinthians six twenty, right? I've been bought with a price. You, you, we need to shoot for more than just living safe lives, right? We need to shoot for more than just saying, hey, what can, what can I do? I can, I can do all things. No, we need to shoot for more. The, the very fact that he says not all things are profitable to me suggests that there is a, a range of value to the activities that you can pursue every day, right? One thing might be totally innocent, but have no profit to it. Another thing will actually increase your love for Christ, your love for others. Some things are maybe allowed, but are they profitable, right? And when we're talking about living a life that's fully convinced, that's a very important question. 
Does this have profit? Will this dampen my enthusiasm, my love, my eagerness to worship Christ? Or will this excite it, enthuse it, encourage it? What, how will this activity build me up? Will it cause, another question, a fellow Christian to stumble? Right? How much, uh, how much uh, a part uh, the, the church plays in your life uh, will determine how important this question is. If you have determined in your heart, hey, I want to live life in the local church, you need to actually evaluate some of your behaviors based on, hey, how is this going to impact those people that are around me? Because believe it or not, the way you live will be revealed. Your life, your delights, your, your enjoyment in life will be revealed. So, so bring that into the question. How will this entertainment how will this entertainment impact those people who are around me? Or you can say it positively. Will this activity build others up, right? If you are living a life that's fully convinced that this activity is for the praise and worship of Christ, how is it going to build up other believers in your life? Or you could ask another question. Will this help with my evangelism? Will it distract me from evangelism? Will it hinder my witness? That's something you should also use to evaluate issues. Or think about it this way. This is one of my favorite uh, favorites. <clears throat> Can I thank God for this activity while I am doing it? Can I give thanks to God for this while I am doing this? Once again, uh, Thanksgiving is the cheat code in the Christian's life. uh, Thanksgiving is the cheat code to purity. Thanksgiving also here is the cheat code to freedom. I can thank God for this as a gift. It's not just being received by ignoring God's rules, but saying this is actually a gift that I find from God. Can I receive it with thanksgiving? Uh, can, I, can I explain how this activity brings glory to God? Ask that question. Does this action bring glory to God? That's the same way of saying, hey, can I thank God for this? Will this bring glory to God? Can I do this activity saying, hey, God has given me this to enjoy? And so in my mind and in my heart while I'm doing this, I am saying this brings God glory and I'm thanking him for it. A really important question to also ask, and this is where we get to with, you know, places like 1 Corinthians or Romans 14 is, hey, will this blunt or blur my conscience? Do I have a conscience uh, about this issue? Can, can I do this issue with uh, a clean heart? Maybe it's something that's, that's, that's not explicitly commanded in Scripture, but can I do it with a clean heart. Now you got to be very careful, right? A conscience can fool you. A conscience can trick you. What you want is to have a conscience fully informed by the word of God and convinced by the word of God and not, and not feel like anything is sinful other than what the word of God says to you is sin. And going back to our Drongo illustration, you know what? This bird is very wily. This bird sometimes realizes its power to control other creatures around it. So it uses its alarming cry when there isn't a hawk present. And then when the animals scurry away from their dinner that they just found, the uh, drongo bird swoops in and takes the meal for themselves. 
It's very good to have a conscience, but if your conscience is alarmed by things that Scripture tells you you shouldn't be alarmed by, you could very well be missing out on something that God wants you to enjoy. That's why it's very important to inform your heart and your mind through the absolute convictions of Scripture. Here, I'll give you a really simple one. If, if, if like all of these questions are starting to just pile up in your mind and it's no longer being useful to you, just forget all of those, and I'll give you one that will be helpful. They'll just break through in your life, right? How do my parents feel about this issue? There's uh, issues settled, right? Well, you may not know exactly how you are called to live in this issue, but you do know how you are called to relate to your parents in this issue, and that is to honor and obey them. Ephesians 6.1, right? I know, I don't know exactly how I'm to live right now, but I am called right now to honor them. And so I will honor them. Let me finish by just asking a question. Been tons of questions this morning. Tons of questions and hopefully some answers. But let me just ask you a question. Paul here, I, I alluded to this last week, but in Romans 14 and, and Romans 15, Paul talks about this issue of their, his brother's conscience. And he basically says to the strong, hey, we have an obligation as strong to forego our freedoms out of love for the weaker, right? We, we have more obligations because we, we do not have such a prickly conscience on these issues. Question, why does Paul not just answer the question? Why doesn't he say, hey, you guys are in a new covenant now. You don't have to worry about foods or anything like that. I mean, he, he does in other places. Uh, he does in Colossians 2. In Galatians, he talks about it a little bit as well. But why does Paul allow these Roman Christians to continue on like this? Why does he say, you stronger ones prefer the weaker ones? Right? Why, why does he do that? Well, I would suggest to you that in the end, the Bible might not be trying to clear up every issue for you. The Bible actually might not necessarily be seeking to develop in you a clear conviction about one particular issue, but it is trying to develop in you a clear conviction about how you want to relate to other believers in the church, right? I think that's what Paul is after in Romans 14 and 15, right? He wants them to develop wisdom, and he also wants them to prove their love for others, right? Oh, this may be a gray area where we disagree, but because I love you and I am unified with you under the grace and mercy that I've received in Christ, I can go without any freedom in order to not wrong my brother, right? I, I want to build you up. I want to encourage you. That is ultimately where God wants your heart to be. I want to pursue the worship of Christ in loving the brothers. That is how the gospel transforms the way you go about every single day, right? I'm no longer living for self, for me, but I'm living to exalt and praise and magnify Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, this passage, and I pray that it was encouraging and helpful. May we live in all matters fully convinced about how we are to bring glory and worship to you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.